The question is, does it work? Like, did Joseph McCarthy's Red Scare find any communists? Because if they did, if he does find communist spies, then I think there would be an argument, which people have tried to make, uh, defenders of Joseph McCarthy. And, and that argument is the ends justify the means. This is all a test. This is all a test. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to The Uncover-Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and with me today in the bunker is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hi, Nathan. Hello, everyone. So let's talk about, because it's almost Halloween, let's talk about a scary time. All right. All right. It is 1950, and a specter is haunting America. Amazing. That specter, of course, is communism. What was going on here? 1949, very quickly... The oldest and one of the largest civilizations in history had just become communist because mm. China goes commie in 1949. That's a big win for the Reds. That's an awful lot of people. And again, like an ancient civilization. Yeah. On the scoreboard, all of a sudden, the commies put up like a huge, massive win. Yeah. It really opens the worry to, well, what who's, next? Who's next? Exactly. And of course, there were then, the next ones were like North Korea, North Vietnam. This It's almost like this, like imagine a map. And I'm sure people did imagine maps. And there's like this red stain. Right. And it's just spreading. Yeah. And spreading and growing and growing and going faster and faster. It's like an infestation. Yeah. Of communism. Well, and the metaphor that was used at the time was that of dominoes. And that one country falls, but then knocks over uh, an adjacent country, which then knocks over another country. And before you know it, all the dominoes have fallen. And democracy and capitalism and freedom of speech, all by the wayside, we now live in a global communist world. And of course, who are the king communists at this point? Oh, that, that's the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union in 1949, they also do something terrifying because the Soviet Union in 1949 set off their first nuclear bomb. Yep, which was, according to CAA analysts, a decade ahead of schedule. Yeah. So they knew, of course, that the Soviets were interested in developing this kind of a weapon, but thought that they were way far behind. Now, yeah, they why? thought that, that America was going to be safe under like a being the only nuclear power for at least a decade. Yeah. And, and instead, kaboom. And why they are able to fast track it is maybe also important for this story. Yeah, because it isn't just that red stain spreading from country to country. There's a bunch of ways that we could be invaded in 1950s in America by the Soviets. Maybe they come in, you know, ships and bombers and and that kind of thing, maybe they invade our minds. Yeah. Maybe instead of country by country slowly becoming communist, maybe you plant the seeds of communism within the United States itself, and that starts to spread. Right. Like invasion of the body snatchers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was an anti-communist text, wasn't it? It was either that... We'll, we'll come back to body snatchers. <laughs> All right. We'll come back to body snatchers. <laughs> and... Because they were confused, it's like, well, how did the Soviets get this bomb so quickly? There was only one possible explanation. There had to have been some Americans who were operating within the defense industry who had gotten infected with communism and had become turncoats and spies. Yeah. 
And so some were rooted out. In 1950, there was uh, two people in particular, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, mm -hmm. a married couple with kids who one, were... One more guilty than the other. Well, yeah. Uh, one probably wasn't really guilty at all. Right, that being Ethel. That being Ethel. But, you know, Julius was properly a Soviet spy, and he was funneling some stuff to the Russians. Uh, they were arrested, and in this time of fear and terror, they were sentenced to death. Right. And a few years later, they were both put to death on the mm -hmm. same day. Like, almost like a human sacrifice to try to deal with the fact that people felt this existential terror. Now, I've got a quote from Jean-Paul Sartre here, the great French philosopher. By killing the Rosenbergs, you have quite simply tried to halt the progress of science by human sacrifice. Magic, acts of faith, witch hunts, sacrifices. Your country is sick with fear. You are afraid of the shadow of your own bomb. Wow, that's great. It's a hell of a line. I mean, Sartre at this point was a bit of a Soviet apologist, it has to be said. Later on, he would come to realize the horrors of Stalinism. Yeah. But that's still kind of an impressive thing to think about. It's like, right, you made the bomb, and now you're afraid of the shadow of your own bomb. Right. And that's where all of this fear ultimately comes from. Yeah. Oh. In amongst all of this, all of this terror, all of this fear, all of this existential dread, that was a country that was then, according to what we said earlier, that was a country that was probably primed for some slick con man to come in <laughs> and take advantage of that. Fortunately, that didn't happen, right? Oh, if only it didn't happen. Ah, uh, nuts. But then, of course, we had the rise and soon also fall of Wisconsin Republican Senator Joseph McCarthy, who really rides the wave of anti-communist fear in the United States. And as Nathan said, there is something to be afraid of. There is communism globally in the world. It exists in Russia. It now suddenly exists in China. They've got the bomb. They've evidently got spies in the United States who are active. It really does strike some Americans as an existential threat. Yeah. And in fact, uh, we know now, looking back on declassified documents and the histories of people who were operative at that time, that, yeah, there were um, Soviet spies in America. There were Americans also spying for the Soviets. So Yeah, now, I mean, if you had gone to a Soviet embassy, yeah, you're going to find dozens and dozens of active spies. Yeah, like the, all the embassy personnel. Yeah, every sing, basically every single person <laughs> working at a Soviet embassy is going to be a spy. There were spies. Nathan and I aren't just making this up. Uh, we've mentioned the Mitrokin archives before on an earlier podcast, and these are KGB records that were exfiltrated out of the Soviet Union uh, around the time of its collapse and then have been published in a very large volume where you get to see what they were up to basically from the 30s to the mid-80s. And there were other ways that the Soviet Union was going to try and make its presence felt. So, for example, the Communist Party in America, so the American Communist Party, was run and controlled by the Soviet Union. They were funded, they were sort of steered and directed. Of course, the local membership doesn't know this. And even the higher-ups in the party aren't necessarily clear where the money's coming from, although many, if they had known, wouldn't have been upset by that. But this is 
how the Cold War is played. You would infiltrate, and America would do the same thing in other countries when they can. You infiltrate friendly, quote-unquote, friendly political groups. You give them information. You give them money. You help them organize. And you hope that they're able to somehow mobilize a domestic insurgency or simply generate enough interest in the party that it becomes a real political force. And in fact, the the... Communist Party in the United States in the 40s was at its peak that it had been in, in the entire time. Now, even that, even that amounts to 0.06% of the population. So minuscule, but it was a lot bigger than a decade earlier when there were only like 7,000 members in all of America who were part of the Communist Party. And also remember that a key aspect of this fear like, communism itself wasn't very well-defined in the, the minds of well, Americans. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you could argue that it wasn't that well-defined in the leaders of the Soviet Union yeah. as well. <laughs> but it, it was just sort of like, it was the other. It was something. It was right. this creeping menace. Uh, I bet a lot of people wouldn't have been able to define it. They would have just said, I, I, I know it when I see it. And so the idea was, even if there was a small amount of commies, that yeah. small amount of commies was going to be able to infect a lot of other people. Yeah, and, and they were going to undermine society. I mean, what we are dealing with here, and we've talked about this on the episodes in the past, is a classic case of a moral panic in which the majority of the population or the mainstream population begins to suspect that there is a minority within it that is undermining that society from within, that's corrupting it, that's somehow changing it, and this is... It's like you have termites in the foundation yeah, of your society exactly. just gnawing away. And they're tiny. Yeah. It doesn't matter because they're still gnawing and gnawing and gnawing. And the, and the thing about a moral panic, and especially one that focuses on communists, is that unlike termites, the communists look just like us. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist... We take his word for it. If a person consistently reads and advocates the views expressed in a communist publication, he may be a communist. If a person supports organizations which reflect communist teachings or organizations labeled communist by the Department of Justice, she may be a communist. If a person defends the activities of communist nations while consistently attacking the domestic and foreign policy of the United States, she may be a communist. If a person does all these things over a period of time, he must be a communist. And so you can't see the danger on the surface. And that allows your imagination, of course, to run away with things. because Invasion you, of the body snatchers. Right? You can start imagining how many... Well, exactly, right? You can't see that they're different from us. They look just like us, but they're not. So this is the general background that begins another one of America's witch hunts. This is it. This is when Joseph McCarthy, in 1950... He goes to a uh, Lincoln uh, memorial speech. This is a kind of... 
Uh, before we go any further, Joseph McCarthy, he was just like a junior senator from Wisconsin. He was a nobody. He wasn't a big deal. He was like a really minor politician. Yeah, like the Senate, his Senate colleagues didn't know his name. Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of there's a ton of people like that in government. That yeah. They don't really, you don't know them. They're not a big deal. Right. But this guy's about to make himself a big deal. This guy's about to make himself a big deal because he happens to sort of discover this artery of fear by accident, almost. He he has two speeches in his pocket on February 9th, 1950, at this Lincoln Memorial Dinner. One of them is on housing for old people, and the other one is uh, this charging that there is this communist threat within the government. He's not sure, even as he walks up to the microphone, which speech he's going to give. And he decides on the... Uh, there are communists in our midst speech. And I think of him a lot like a prospector who has struck oil. And I think the prospector would be as happy striking oil as gold, as mine, as copper, because what the prospector is interested in is money. And what Joseph McCarthy is interested in is power and notoriety and fame. Now, we're going to get really cynical here for a second. So if there's any younger listeners who care about democracy, they should plug their ears at this point. <laughs> but it's almost like politicians don't necessarily believe in all of the things that they say. Not this guy. Who knows about other politicians? But Joseph McCarthy was very cynical on this point. It's almost like, you know, as a class president, he'd be like, what do you guys want? And then the class says, we want more recess. He says, well, I'm for more recess. He didn't seem particularly principled from his own background. He was just interested in getting popular and notoriety. And this, he struck gold. Like he just, he gave this speech and he was completely taken aback by how much uptake the speech received. So this is the famous speech where he says, I have here, and he, he brandishes a piece of paper and he says, I have here in my hand, a list of 205 government workers working in the State Department known to be members of the Communist Party. That's quite an accusation because what he is essentially saying is there are subversives within the government working actively to undermine the government. Now, interestingly, at this point, the Communist Party, and remains so ever since, is a legal entity. Being a member of the Communist Party is not against the law. And it's not, the Communist Party isn't really uh, for the violent overthrow of democracy. Like, that's not what's in its charter. So what is actually the accusation here? Like, the accusation that he has a list of 205 people. Well, it's that here, communist has already morphed into, as Nathan was already talking about, a general fear of the other, and of a kind of an amorphous danger that is besetting us from within. And so basically, McCarthy says, I have a list of 205 very bad people doing very bad things against good Americans who like white picket fences and apple pie and, you know, lawns and dogs and whatever. I've got a list of 205 disease carriers. Yeah, exactly. Who are walking amongst us and sneezing on us. Yeah, exactly. It might be worth just pausing about this number 205, because 
I, you and I have taught this in, in class. This is a kind of a staple of um, Cold War history. This is really one of the excesses of Cold War history um, in the United States. And I've never questioned that number, 205. But it turns out it is quite questionable. Joseph McCarthy was lying. He did not, and, and this isn't my interpretation, this is a number of people after the fact who knew him well, his secretary, people who worked with him, people who are very close to him. Well, and also intelligence agencies, Yeah, well, who were we'll, also interested in rooting a well, communist. Yeah, exactly, we'll get back to that. They, they were like, no, this was, this was total nonsense. I think it was a secretary who said that list that he was brandishing was actually the notes for his other speech. Yeah, that sounds that checks out. Now that's some good flim flammery right, right there. So what is it? What is it effective in doing? Like, what happens next? So he gives this speech. Well, what, he gives what? this speech, and people get worried because there has, over the last ooh twenty or thirty years, there's been a consensus forming that communism is bad. Now, again, we live in the future, so. This might not be such a stretch for us, but there was an evolution in American history that brought us to the 1950s consensus. The Russian Revolution of 1917, shortly there followed with the formation of the Communist Party in America, that is. And there's a lot, a lot of lefties out there. Well, they had the Great Depression. And and I mean, in the Great Depression, well, a lot of people understandably said, hey, I don't think capitalism's any kind of great shakes. Exactly. And what you're not seeing are the purges in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, you, you don't know about the Cheka. You don't know about the Gulag. Exactly. I mean, some d dissident here or there might, you know, be bemoaning something, but how much can you really trust them? So the kind of horrors that we associate with Stalinism of the mid-30s... And they were, are horrors. They really are horrors, were to some extent just unknown. And people are imagining Soviet communism very much in this utopian way of like, well, we share the wealth and, and everybody's got a job and we have dignity and, and we might not have all the consumer luxuries... But at least all of us have the necessities. And, and if you had read Marx, if you're a Westerner who's read Marx and you heard, oh, the Soviet Union are building their entire society around the works of Marx, you yeah. might think, oh, that'll make a nice, fair society. Right. Exactly. And you will not be correct. Right. But Sartre, who you quoted earlier, and others, you know, were actually kind of pro-Soviet at this time. Until the stuff started coming out. Well, Basically, exactly. Basically, when Khrushchev took over and started admitting, oh, that last guy, Stalin? Yeah. One of history's worst monsters. Right. And even before in the United States, so, so already at the end of the Second World War, there was a lot of people who had soured on Stalin and the Soviet Union. There was the... There well, was, I mean, Churchill, who was prime minister of England, wanted to keep the tanks going east yeah. after they had taken over Germany and then invade the Soviet Union. Like, yeah, well, he wanted to declare war immediately on the Soviets, despite the fact that we had just been allies in World War II. Exactly. So you have this anti-Soviet consensus that emerges in America in the 1950s where even left-leaning liberals are like, yeah, 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 we want like more fairness and healthcare and education, but we weekends. don't want the Soviet Union. Yeah, weekends would be nice. Uh, Eight-hour work days, that kind of stuff, unions. Yeah. But not like... Gulags. But no gulags, please. <laughs> Which, I, mean, I agree. I got that. We should, we should do that. Pretty reasonable. I agree with all that. So he is able to tap into this, this intense fear and generate a kind of a reaction 
by constantly slinging mud at people who he accuses of being communists. Now, I want to take a pause here before we get into, like, who did he accuse, what happened to them, and that. We may already have some sense that the Red Scare is an overreaction. And if we don't know that as a listener, if you've tuned in because you don't know what the Red Scare is, it is an, a moral panic that's an overreaction in the 1950s, one of those things where the cure is worse than the disease. That's what I'd say. And I'm not the only one, actually, Harry Truman, so angered and frustrated by McCarthy's Red Scare slash communist hunting, actually commissions a report on what he's doing. And the guy who created the report was a major general, and he traces it back all the way to Salem, Massachusetts, and he says this is just something that happens with scary regularity in American politics, that we have this kind of public overreaction to a perceived threat within the community. Yeah, but here's the problem. If you are in Salem and you say, hey, I think this witch hunt is an overblown reaction. Yeah, you get accused of being a witch. Yeah, that's witch talk. Right? So again, if you want to come out against McCarthy and his Red Scare, yeah. what does that mean about you? Well, exactly. And, and, and of course, we're going to see people who very clearly were not communists, who decided to attack Joe McCarthy for his pugnacious, aggressive very undemocratic approach to solving what could potentially maybe be a security threat, and they did not fare very well. But well, I want to bracket that for a second, because the question is, does it work? Like, did Joseph McCarthy's Red Scare find any communists? Because if they did, if he does find communist spies, then I think there would be an argument, which people have tried to make, uh, defenders of Joseph McCarthy. And, and that argument is the ends justify the means. Exactly. The argument is if we're facing an existential threat from the communists and whatever you did, the nonsense you did, did find communists, then maybe your, like, your means are justified by the fact that you found some, that you had some success. Exactly. And prevented yet more very dangerous secrets from you know, going over to Stalin or making the world much more unsafe. So do the question is, do we have any evidence for the fact that the Joseph McCarthy's hunt for communist subversion within the United States was or was not successful? And luckily, because we live in the future, we do, in fact, have exactly this evidence. We're so smug because we live in the future. I know. The future is the best. Uh, the Venona decrypts. This was a counterintelligence operation run by the United States from the 50s, I think, to the 80s. And basically, uh, it's a, ooh, I get to use a fancy word. It's a SIGINT. It's a SIGINT op. Nice. Uh, so signal intelligence operation, which basically means they listen to stuff. They listen to radio transmissions. They listen to uh, cables being sent to and from the Washington embassy, stuff like that. Anyway, it turns out the CIA did know about a whole bunch of active spy rings and American spies or Soviet spying for the uh, Soviet Union, American spying for the Soviet Union, stuff like that. And the number is just a little over 300. And there's a list. Uh, there's a list of the people who were actually spying 
for the Soviet Union. And then there's the list that Joseph of all the people that Joseph McCarthy attacked. And there is not a single name that is the same on both of those lists. That is not a great record. So that so, is a 0% batting average. Exactly. McCarthy. Joseph McCarthy caught exactly zero communist spies. Now, he even did like happen upon people who were, you know, who who it later turned out were either themselves spies or sort of in the orb of spies, but he didn't notice. Like he talked to them, didn't notice, let them go, hounded other people who were totally innocent, who did nothing wrong, except maybe have you know, like donated to a left-wing organization 10 years earlier. But if you assume that the Soviet Union is infiltrating your country and undermining all these lefty organizations from the Communist Party to feminist outfits to um, civil Civil liberties, exactly, then you could potentially be a supporter of all kinds of communist front organizations. Anyway, it didn't work. He didn't find any. But for four years, Joseph McCarthy, with some others, he's not alone in this. There are others who, for our purposes today, take a bit of a a back seat. All of this kind of senatorial work is done through committees. I'm not going to belabor that, like which committee was chaired by who and when it was created and, and who wielded the gavel, because there are a bunch and it's kind of a bit tedious and tawdry. So we're just going to we're just going to talk about the Red Scare as such and just subsume all these committees under Joseph McCarthy is doing this and that. There was he, a bunch of moving parts, but it's all going in the same direction. Exactly. So let's see how this actually goes down. Uh, I thought I'd start chronologically. Now there are hundreds and hundreds of people who get ensnared, probably more if you count their family members, but. I thought I'd start already with just the first witness because you see quite a lot of the, the methods, the methods, and also why when it like how often it doesn't work and what it is that gets you into trouble. Okay, so Dorothy Kenyon, her dates are 1888 to 1972, and uh, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, even into the 60s, she is a left wing activist. She might be what you might today call a social justice warrior. I don't know if that's a derogatory term or not, but she's certainly on the on the left. She is interested in feminism, civil rights. She's interested in ameliorating poverty. And she is America's choice as their representative to the League of Nations for the study of the status of women. He wanted to get somebody, this was seemed a bit like a low-hanging fruit. So here's this sort of activist woman on the left, and apparently she is part of 28 organizations, which Joseph McCarthy claimed were all front organizations for communism. So what Joseph McCarthy is saying is that just like the Communist Party of America, These other kind of the NAACP or some kind of feminist group or who knows, like probably even like People for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, PETAR, that those kinds of organizations were actually, you know, secretly being funded and run. And so he says, you know, you'd have to be an, Joseph McCarthy says, you would have to be an idiot not to know that you are not in the pay of the Soviets belonging to all of these 
different organizations. Only one of them had actually been noted by the State Department as being somewhat suspect. I think it was called something along the lines of the Soviet-American Friendship League. I mean, that one sounds like a spy ring. But other very prominent members were a part of it, like Albert Einstein and others, who, of course, also gets dragged in front of the committee. But this is, again, like, this is not... This is not the Soviet Union that you and I now know with the gulag and stuff. This is like a relatively unknown political entity. And, and, there and if are... you're in favor of not nuclear annihilation, yeah. you might join something that has to do with Soviet American peace. Exactly. And a lot of people, I think you mentioned this earlier, who were interested, Americans who are interested in communism in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, are not interested in the Soviet Party or the Soviet Union. They are interested in reducing poverty, reducing uh, child illnesses, getting education and healthcare to rural communities, stuff like that, right? So they're draw into something like the Communist Party, even if it is secretly steered by the Soviets, isn't because they are some kind of like hardcore Soviet ideologues. They just want to make the world a better place. But now they're being treated like they're hardcore Soviet ideologues in these these interrogations that yeah. McCarthy is pulling off. So, so talk a little bit about these interrogations. Like, how does this play out? Well, so so um, it plays out a lot like a courtroom, where uh, a somewhat a one-sided courtroom, where McCarthy is sitting there and essentially accusing people uh, in this really underhanded way, where he's, you know, he sort of sits back and looks at the accused and wonders aloud to the room whether this person really is this stupid or if they aren't maybe a little smarter than they're suggesting and that, you know, I mean, we're not saying that they're trying to overthrow this, the American state, but, you know, and then it's sort of like left hanging. A lot of innuendo. A lot of innuendo. And, and so, of course, just like in a court, like if you are facing the prosecution and they feel like really making your life a misery and let's say you didn't do the crime, you can nonetheless be portrayed in a very awful light. And anything that anybody did that could potentially be seen in some way as maybe having once somehow supported communism. And of course, this is where we get the famous line that becomes ubiquitously associated with McCarthy and the Red Scare. Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Again, noting that being a member of the Communist Party was not illegal, does not make you a terrorist, does not mean you're for the overthrow of the United States or for the Soviet Union, right? And the thing that got a lot of people into the trouble was the have you ever been part. Because right, and they're like, well, back in the 30s, yeah. the Great Depression. Or I when I was a, couple, a kid, yeah. you know, I mean, can I really account for all my political views at the age of 18? I really like this girl and she took me to this party. Yeah, and then... right, exactly. So Dorothy Kenyon is a very smart woman. Like she is like really, um, and, and she was able to defend herself really well and, and really acquitted herself quite well to the point where the committee who in the day in the final days of her hearing McCarthy himself doesn't even bother to show up i think he realizes it's a lost cause and the rest of the committee members are sort of embarrassed 
left holding the bag for this accusation that's clearly gone wrong, where she's able to defend herself eloquently and adequately by saying, none of these things that I'm a member of are illegal. You, nobody has been able to show any proof that they are actually supported by the Soviet Union. I am not a communist. I am not a carrot carrying anything. And 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 the committee leader at that point actually essentially apologized and says, yes, you're right. I don't think you're guilty of anything. McCarthy is then later called out. So this was supposed to be like your big case. And you know, basically, what are you doing? This This made you look foolish. And whenever this happened, McCarthy would just double down. And in this case, he said, well, you know, I'm just doing my job. I'm just trying to root out the communist uh, traitors in our midst. I'm sorry that it was a woman, you know, as if that was the offensive part here. But, and this I found really interesting, he suggested that it was fine because it was clear, like she was cleared, and so therefore exonerated no problem. In fact, she could carry this as a badge of honor that she had been exonerated from the committee. Well, and we're going to see this happen over and over again. She was clearly exonerated by the committee, but her work for the American government ended there. Now, she remains being an activist for the rest of her life, but she is never again hired in any official capacity by the American government at any level. Because one of the dangers of being accused in, these, in, the, in the Red Scare was the stigma. Yeah. You were going to get red on you. Yeah, exactly. And that stigma was enough to have other, it was this, this annoying worry or, or idea that we have that where there's smoke, there must be fire. So, well, you know, she was acquitted probably for something. She must have some, done something, Exactly. Though. She probably was acquitted for some kind of... Technicality. Um, technicality, some legalese nonsense. We don't understand that those lefties are all so good at, you know, using the... Bunch of weasels. Right? But he seemed to have taken no uh, flack from this. He was, he, was, he was like, okay, moving on. This is a characteristic that I've seen in some recent politicians as well that you might think of as a personality flaw, but actually mm. it's kind of a superpower when you have it as a politician. A lack of shame. Yeah. If you have a lack of shame, that gives you like the ability to just sort of like bounce criticism off you because you don't care. Yeah. And so whereas somebody who felt shame after this first court case, which clearly went terribly... <laughs> Somebody might be like, ooh, I've went, I, go, I went too far. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm going to just sort of back into the bush slowly like Homer Simpson. Yeah, yeah. But when you have the superpower of no shame, which I think was probably fueled to a large degree by whiskey in this case, that allows you to press forward where others wouldn't. That's right. And added to that, I think there's a certain bizarre lack of seriousness in terms of the accusations from McCarthy's side in private. Like when uh, a lot of people commented how charming he was when the cameras were off. And so he would have just basically destroyed your life with all these public accusations. The cameras turn off, he puts his arm around you, asks you about your kids, you know, invites you out for a beer. But it's very real for anybody who's accused. Yeah, it is very real. It's hard to really understand the severity and ex um, extent of the damage caused by McCarthyism. When we did Salem, we had a nice number. It was 19 people executed for witchcraft and two dogs. 
Now, we did flesh that out and say, you know, there were people who died along the way and who were then not counted. But there was like a very clear cause and effect relationship there where you could say, well, this panic led to... Killed these people. Killed these people because that's what those people who were killing them said they were dying for, right? And they were on the scaffold. There was read out that they were being killed for witchcraft. Now, with the Red Scare, it's not exactly clear, like... There was a bunch of people who took their life. There was a, a radio engineer for Voice of America, for example, who becomes the fall guy for having put the radio receiving towers in a suboptimal place. And this was blah, 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 because he is actually trying to sabotage. And I mean, the poor guy was just doing what he was told. And then he ends up being the reason that or the fall guy for this whole made-up conspiracy. Well, in the midst of his hearings, he steps out onto the road in front of a truck that was barreling towards him. The truck runs him over, and later they find a note in his pocket, which is addressed to his family, saying, look, essentially saying, this is the only way I could imagine getting out without having these accusations destroy your lives, like my wife and my kid's life. Right, um, because they would get red on them too. Yeah. Senator Lester Hunt, his his uh, son is gay and is entrapped by an FBI officer looking for dirt on his dad. You know, they, they get like pictures of him being seduced and blah, blah, blah. And they threaten the, his dad, the senator, uh, who then later also takes his own life. Now, the cause and effect relationships here aren't as clear as they are with the Salem, but, you know... Still the, pretty clear. The damage, is, the damage is there. Now, it gets less clear in the case of, say, Martha Harris, who takes her life about a decade after, but her life was never the same after McCarthyism. Now, then there's a lot of other examples of victimhood, there's the fact that you will never work in government again, like happened to Dorothy Kenyon. Of course, that happened to a lot of very innocent people who were patriots who were doing their thing, who from merely being you know, identified as somebody lost their job. But also their children. You know, this, this kind of, these were spectacles that took place in the newspaper and suddenly some kid is going to school and is now being teased mercilessly. There's one kid, the teacher read an article about this kid's dad to the class with the kid there. Um, you could have red paint smeared on your house. One particularly funny example was a bunch of physics students tried to get a petition signed for a Coke machine to be uh, put into their student lounge, but nobody would sign the petition lest they get into trouble years later for having, you know, supported something, something. Who well, knows? Maybe... I mean, I would say a Coke machine would be red. <laughs> right? I mean, who knows? So it's a bit hard to... Quantify. Quantify the damage that was done. The damage was real, and it emerged a lot in people's mental health, uh, in terms of their relationships with their partners and children, in terms of their career prospects, and, and in some extreme cases, also in suicide. Yeah. So it was not uh, without very serious consequences. I was talking about Dorothy Kenyon. She was the first one. Owen Latimer has the dubious distinction of being the first big one. So 
McCarthy is, is making noise and he's really good at playing the media. And he's making noise that he knows of the spy master in the United States. And he, he keeps giving hints, but not telling anybody. And so, of course, you know, there's this sort of ramp up in terms of news cycle and stories, tantalizing, right? Finally, he drops the name and a guy, then well-known journalist, Drew Pearson, outs a guy named Owen Latimer on his uh, radio show. Now, Owen Latimer is a political science puff. He's one of my guys. And he was a China expert. He was called America's spy master. And okay, look, this is how McCarthy imagined this. He imagined that the Soviets were somehow smuggling agents into the United States. And when they landed in the United States, their first point of call was to go to Owen Latimer's office and receive their marching orders. So he was basically, in McCarthy's rendering, the spy master organizing all of the American uh, spies or Soviet spies in America. This was, again, so absurd. Now, Latimer was an expert on China. He had been there during the communist revolution. Uh, He was critical of Chiang Kai-shek, as most close observers were, because Chiang Kai-shek was a crook who was embezzling money and uh, not doing a very good job of fighting the communists. McCarthy already immediately has to backtrack, starts to make it as though he wasn't even the one, like that McCarthy himself wasn't the one who had identified Latimer as the big spy master. A lot of McCarthy's case is based on a disgruntled communist named Louis Boudens. And uh, he's just not reliable. Like he is just a grumpy guy who, I don't know, didn't have any friends in the party and now left and is like, I'll show you guys and just rats them all out. And he says that, oh yeah, 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 Latimer is like the top guy. But they've got no evidence. They've got nothing. And of course, you know, the case crumbles. But again, not without consequence. Uh, Latimer's students, every one of them is blacklisted. So they can't get a job. Latimer worked also as a consultant for the government, never works as a consultant again. And uh, in the 60s, leaves the United States fed up with all of it and becomes uh, an expert in uh, China, expert in England, kind of disappears. Of course, this happens hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, and everybody who is somehow ensnared in this has their life and reputation ruined. And also, like, a really insidious aspect of this particular witch hunt is what is the way that you can get these guys to go easier on you? If you're accused, what can you do so that maybe things don't go as badly for you as they could? What's the one thing? You gotta name people. You gotta start ratting out your friends and family members. And that's one of the really insidious things about this is that you'd be put in this situation, you'd be bullied, you'd be threatened... And they'd be like, hey, there's a way out. All you have to do is put people you care about through what you're going through now. And right. people had to make this horrifying decision. Yeah. And again, us in the future, we can look back and judge those people who did that. But I like, honestly, you can't. No. Because honestly, you don't know what you're going to do in that situation. Like, would you wrap me out? I think I, I like to assume that I would. You would. You like to assume you would wrap me out. I do. Because I think... You rat. No, I know. But I think 
the danger emerges when we assume the opposite. Yeah, that's probably it's, true. It's, it's, it's the same thing like assuming you're a good person in all situations. It, it, it's, that's, that's, the, that's the condition for being a not good person. So if you're assuming that you're going to rat me out, then if you don't rat me out, then we're all going to be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I set sense. the bar very low for right. my own ethical behavior. Yeah. And then <laughs> occasionally I, I you reach You trip it. over that bar. Exactly. And I'm like, look, at, look how good I am. But no, I think you're right. I think because the tendency is to assume that we wouldn't be the bad people, I think that that is it that in it's its own danger but i'm a pretty i think i would be pretty cynical in that situation to be honest because what am i gonna do like what i got i got kids i got some life left i'm just gonna sacrifice it for nothing because nobody cares and i mean and that's what we would do right we would start rationalizing we would say well you yeah. know these people are I'm already get, rationalizing <laughs> right hasn't even happened yet <laughs> be like, well, these people are going to get caught anyway. Right. What does it matter if, if I rat them out and I yeah. go free or someone else rats them out and they go free? Like, so I might as well rat them out and go free. I mean, I'd love to think that I'm a good person, mm-hmm. but I, I, I don't The thing about situations is that situations right, have a way exactly. of overpowering Exactly, goodness. exactly, exactly. This example was a lot of fun because it kind of, it shows McCarthy's deep cynicism. And also his, his, in a sense, his genius. Like he, he knew how to uh, mess with people really well. I just mentioned Drew Pearson as being the guy who broadcast the revelation that Owen Latimer was this grand spy, which of course he wasn't. Um, Drew Pearson at, uh, in the 50s, uh, he's also a pretty big anti-communist and he's got the CV to show it. But he doesn't like Joseph McCarthy. Because of his kind of bullying tactics. And so, they're, they're also competing for the same space, basically. Yeah, so they're, they don't get along. And the way they deal with each other, especially McCarthy, is that they start throwing dirt at each other. Of course they do. McCarthy accuses uh, Pearson of being a communist, and then uh, Pearson accuses McCarthy probably like of being a fascist or something. This goes back and forth. Pearson uses his radio show as his platform. Uh, McCarthy uses the Senate floor and also to talking to journalists as his platform. It actually comes to physical blows. They meet in the cloakroom, I think at the Senate room, uh, Senate chambers in the cloakroom. I think it was there. And uh, McCarthy actually like grabs his arm and s- either slaps or punches Drew Pearson in the face. <laughs> Although McCarthy comes out looking like a bully, not, and again, this is the 1950s, things were different. Like some of these behaviors were seen as a bit of like bravado and machismo and sort of like, this is what real men do kind of stuff. In this situation, he did not come out looking that great. So this fight sort of goes back and forth until McCarthy decides to attack Drew Pearson's sponsor, because we know he has a radio show. And his radio show is sponsored by the Adams Hat Company back in the day, as when Nathan said. When everyone people, wore hats. When people wore hats. It, hat this, companies the, were a big deal. Yeah, this mattered. McCarthy says, effectively, anybody who buys an Adams hat is unknowingly supporting a communist infiltration. The Adams Hat Company is like, we don't want anything to do with this fight we don't want that kind of heat on our hats they pull their sponsorship of drew pearson's radio show 
which in today's money would be roughly equivalent to two and a half million dollars a year in sponsorship. It's a lot of hat money. This was huge. You can buy a lot of hats with that. This also really screws Drew Pearson's career because this was his sponsor. Drew Pearson later sees Joe McCarthy. They have an exchange that wasn't entirely pleasant. And as Joe McCarthy leaves, he puts on an Adam's hat. And it's, it's sort of like a, a little wink. And the argument that you're making here, which is interesting because I haven't really heard it before when I've talked to people about McCarthy, is that he wasn't some kind of rabid anti-communist. No. He had just found himself a shtick. Yeah. And he was sticking to his shtick. Exactly. Like that the, and this is why the real anti-communists like Richard Nixon did not like him. Because Nixon was involved in the Alger Hiss case and really has some some background in this. Hoover did like him until his fall, but was also at times quite suspicious of, of what he was doing. For McCarthy, McCarthy discovers this decades after other people have been like you know, making this the central point of their political career. Yeah. Well, I mean, because you've got all these hardcore anti-communists and then McCarthy just sort of stumbles in, literally drunk. Like, let me ask you a question. If, and I'm not saying he was, but if McCarthy had actually been a Soviet asset, could he have done a better job for the Soviets than he did? That is exactly Winston Churchill's position. Winston Churchill said, and this is a rough quote, he says something along the lines of, Joseph McCarthy has done more for communism than I have done against it. Yeah, because he was out there making like making all this noise. And meanwhile, there was real Soviet spies yeah. who were getting away, whereas innocent people were being caught up in the Red Scare and having their lives ruined and sometimes their lives ended. And, and a lot of times, these are Americans who, like Dorothy Kenyon, who you might not agree with all of her political stances, but she is somebody who is working on behalf of America to try and make it better. I mean, that's like the definition of a patriot, is somebody who goes out of their way uh, to make their country better. And then you get treated like this as a result. I think a lot of bystanders who are watching this wonder, well, is America really yeah. the land of the free? Maybe like, America it, does suck. Maybe the Soviets are onto something. Right? Like it. The, so you're right. They're they're. Well, I mean, look at it this way. We've talked about this before in our movie episode. A movie like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where there's this this alien that comes down and starts taking over people and replacing them and insidiously like taking over your whole town. Is that a story about the dangers of communism, or is that a story about the dangers of McCarthyism? Right. You could look at it either way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because in a way, what what we feared, we here being Americans of the 1950s, what we feared in communism were precisely the kind of non-free excesses that McCarthy was demonstrating. Yeah, and, and, and that's, uh, that's amazingly ironic. Yes. It's and, like, and, to fight the Soviets, we will become more Soviet than Soviet. Right, or become to fight totalitarians, we'll become more totalitarian. And this was noted by many people at that time, including Drew Pearson and others. The cure is worse than the disease here. Mm -hmm. that, that what Joe McCarthy is doing is worse than if the, we actually had 205 operating card-carrying communists within the State Department. Although, again, that sounds like commie talk to me. Maybe somebody needs to be yeah, brought yeah, yeah. in front of a tribunal. Yeah, right? 
So then what eventually happens? What happens to McCarthy? Like he's he's skyrocketed in in like power. He's got like immense influence at this point yeah. in the mid 50s. So what happens? Well, basically he goes too far too fast and he uh <laughs> he takes it up with the army. Right. Uh, and you know <laughs> I mean, this was something quite remarkable. Like there was no, there were no sacred cows for Joseph McCarthy. He was willing to slander presidents, war heroes, you know, the kind of no-go personalities in terms of today's public culture. Like you cannot make political hay by going after a veteran. But, but right? on, at this point, he is high on his own supply. Yeah. Like he is drunk, not only on the copious amount of, of whiskey that he's drinking, but he's also drunk on the adulation. He's sure. drunk on the attention. Yeah. And, and that's when we slip up and make bad mistakes. Exactly. And, and, and I should add, and this is a little less sexy, but as an explanation, but he was just also like he had, he had burned so many people along the way, including so many of his Senator colleagues that he didn't have any more allies. Once the tide turned against him. Right. People were glad to see. It's like when the bully starts getting his in the schoolyard, yeah. all of these people who were standing by. Yeah. Now they're at the bully. Exactly. Even if they were like cheering for the bully, you know, when it when the tide turns, suddenly the bully's got no friends. You're absolutely yep. right. So I think that was important an important dimension. Now, Nathan has brought up um, McCarthy's drinking a bunch. That might have been a factor as well because he starts his political career as what we would probably today class as an alcoholic. Like he was drinking a lot. And this is the fifties. He's a nineteen fifties alcoholic. Yeah. That is and, Bad and for you. By the, but, but all of this publicity, it's not doing good things for his health. It's not doing good things for his personal relationships. And he is drinking a lot. Um, you know, in one, one they, he goes out, and this is already after a day of been like sneaking drinks all day. He goes out with some press guys and has nine bourbons with them that evening. If I have nine bourbons... Uh, you can find me in the hospital. I mean, that's not like that's not recreational drinking. Mm -hmm. That's that's the kind of stuff you do when you are trying to end it. That's somebody trying to put out a fire. Exactly, exactly. His drinking has has really escalated. He's drinking during the hearings, so there's a difference between the hearings in the morning and the hearing in the afternoon. Although he wakes up and the first thing he does is have a drink. So the way it all goes badly is having not been a nice person and having been drinking very heavily, he now overreaches. And what happens is that they've got a friend, and by they I mean Joe McCarthy and his now protege Roy Cohn, they have a friend called David Shine. And David Shine is uh, being drafted into the army. These two, McCarthy and Cohn, try and lean on the army brass to reduce this guy's service to not seeing action or, you know, being some kind of like out of the way desk guy so his life remains comfortable and stuff. The army basically is like, no, you know, stop doing this, stop interfering with us. So uh, McCarthy responds in the way that has worked so well over the last four years. Sounds to me like the army's communist. Right? So he turns around and starts insinuating that there are communistic elements within the army, that there are, quote-unquote, security risks. 
Now, now remember who's president at this point. It's Eisenhower. And this is Eisenhower. General Eisenhower. Yeah. This is an army guy. And he's sort of been going along with McCarthy up until this point, but he's becoming increasingly unhappy with him. And this is a point where Eisenhower's like, okay, we've got to deal with this. And as far as I understand, there's a couple things that Eisenhower does. One, he sends his vice president Nixon out to subtly suggest to the press that maybe McCarthy is now fair game to go after. Okay. And two, Eisenhower puts McCarthy's army hearings on TV. Yeah. And this is worth watching. You can get it on YouTube. The army hearings, known variously as just the army hearings, the McCarthy army hearings, they go from April to June 1954. And they were televised. And for the first time, all the other hearings had been in secret. And then what you got to hear about them came mostly from McCarthy's own, from, from himself or from his mouthpieces. Or like his PR guys. Exactly. And they're all like, yeah, 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 we won. That guy lost, you know, nothing to see. And we were see. so eloquent and right? not drunk at all. Exactly. And now you get to see it for the first time. And I think this is where things change. So first of all, the army were the boys who died and to some extent women, who died keeping America safe in the Second World War against Hitler. Yeah. You know, I mean, Which these still are pretty recent at this point. Very recent. It's nine years ago. Mm-hmm. And Germany capitulates in, in, in May of 1945. And, and this is and April to ni- June yeah, of 1954. 1954. So we're, this is not even a decade on yet. And you're, you know, like a lot of them are in graves in Europe. I mean, yeah. there's got to be you got to be, like, pouring salt on a lot of American wounds. And now people are watching their TV, and they're seeing, uh, like, a drunk, belligerent, angry McCarthy just bully soldiers. Yeah, in ways that also, like we've been saying here, just don't make sense. Yeah. Like, because you gave money sometime 10 years ago to somebody once, whatever. Um, But it's during these hearings that we get the line maybe the second most famous line from the Red Scare. And it's, uh, it is uttered by Joseph Welch, who during the hearings asks of McCarthy, Let us not assassinate this land further, You have done enough. Have right. you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? His drinking had gotten a lot worse. Um, he's drinking during the hearings, and the Senate revolt. Uh, they're like they're they're they want to now get rid of him, get rid of McCarthy, and it's it's uh, instigated by Senator Ralph Flanders of Vermont, who begins the process of stripping McCarthy of all his uh, chairmanships. This is where he's really wielding power. He's still a junior senator. He's not distinguished from any of his other senatorial colleagues by anything except that he's running these committees. And as committee member, he has the power to call witnesses, to, you know, publicly defame people, stuff like that. So uh, the Senate now creates their own committee. (laughs) This is how everything is done. This is why I've not given any of these committees names because they're very long. But it's worth noting, as you also say, that, that Nixon is now involved in this committee. Here's the steering member of the majority Republicans, Um, And the committee, this one is known as the Watkins Committee, and they charge McCarthy under, there's there's 33 charges, uh, there's so many they have to group them into five main groups, among them being stuff like uh, encouraging people uh, to leak secrets, you know, uh, 
Anyway, those hearings wrap up in September 13th of 54. Two weeks later, there's a 68-page report condemning McCarthy's behavior as highly improper, these are quotes, highly improper, contemptuous, and denunciatory. Then there's a, an election, I think it's in November, where the Democrats win both the House and the Senate. And again, it's hard to draw an exact causal relationship here, but a lot of people think that that had to do with the, the, the public fall of uh, Joseph McCarthy and his witch hunts. Well, yeah, because the public really did turn. I mean, that, that moment with Welch asking that question about, like, have you no sense of decency? Yeah. Like, a lot, that really got to people. And even before that, you started seeing people like Edward R. Murrow, who was sort of like America's newscaster, who were going on and they were starting to criticize McCarthy and some of the massive overreach and some of, like, the wild speculative nature of his attacks. No one familiar with the history of his country can deny that congressional committees are useful. It is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one, and the junior senator from Wisconsin has stepped over it repeatedly. So there was like a consensus starting to build where people were willing to basically stand up to the bully. Yeah, exactly. And so... He is stripped of all his chairmanships, and uh, he is reduced to being just a junior senator again, but one now totally shunned, whereas he begins his senatorial career where nobody knows him. Now everybody knows him, but nobody wants to talk to him. That's very different. And so if he gets up on the Senate floor to make a speech, suddenly people are opening newspapers or leaving. If he meets colleagues in the cloakroom, or in the chambers, people find excuses to disappear. I, you know, it's it's hard to feel sorry for Joseph McCarthy, but uh, I thought this was a kind of poignant end to this narrative, just how badly it goes sometimes for the bully. He was not invited to a fundraiser for Nixon's campaign, but he showed up anyway. <laughs> and well, uh, he would have been pretty desperate at that point. Yeah. Nobody's talking to, to try him. to be relevant again. Exactly. Uh, so he sits at the end of the table and is immediately asked to leave, even though all his colleagues are there, right? He's asked to leave. And there's a reporter who follows him out and finds him in a nearby alleyway weeping. In 1957, Joseph McCarthy dies, uh, probably of alcoholism. Yeah, cirrhosis of the liver is what I've heard. Yeah, I've heard also hepatitis, mm. um, but that seems it like... It was a whole mix of things. Yeah, it was a whole bunch of liver stuff. Yeah, but he was in his late 40s. Like, he, he, he's not an old man at this point. It's true. Although he had been in and out of hospital, he had issues, all kinds of issues that I would now associate with people in their late 60s and into their 70s. Yeah. Pictures of him... He does not look well. But McCarthyism, you know, has outlived Joseph McCarthy. And even though this was a four-year period, and sometimes I, I tell my daughter this, you know, I tell her the story without giving her the dates, and she asks, well, how long did it last? Four years. That's it, four years? But, of course, all of the people caught in the crosshairs, like the poor son whose father killed himself in order to you know, well, the two parents who killed themselves in order to prevent trouble, you that, know. That stigma from carrying on to their families. This one of these guys, he said he was in his 90s and this was still a deep pain in his life. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so, 
There's that kind of a tragedy. But I think when we did Salem, we noted that one of the great-granddaughters of an executed person in Salem found herself in front of McCarthy's Red Scare, the, the modern witch hunt. Truman noted this relationship. And I think we could find many other examples in modern American history where the witch hunt and the scapegoat has reemerged. Yeah. And that goes back to Jean-Paul Sartre saying, your country is sick with fear. <laughs>